0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about Alex G signing to RCA and I quiz Ian on his own Pitchfork album reviews. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He'll never forget where he was when Donald Trump played a Smith song at one of his rallies. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you?
1: Yeah, it brings me no pleasure to report that, you know, they had to choose the Smith songs that Deftones covered. I mean, like, there's so many Morrissey solo songs that, you know, tap into the, uh, you know, latent racism and like fear of the future—that you know—that that appeals to the fan base of you know Donald Trump. They could have played "You're the One for Me, Fatty." I mean, that one's also pretty <laughs> well,
0: appropriate. But <laughs> so we should say okay. So I I think this was this week, or it might have been late last week. Donald Trump played the Smiths, the Smiths classic. Please, please, please let me get what I want. Yeah, at least it's a short song, uh, <laughs> and. The thing about that is is like Donald Trump's self aware. Like there's something about him playing that song that almost feels like he's being self-deprecating because it feels like him begging to be president again. Am I giving him too much credit yeah, here? I mean, cuz like cause, what
1: he always plays is like the broad, like the Broadway musical version of like Cat or Phantom of the Opera. That's what he always plays and it's not well, even like the it's like the Gerard Butler A movie soundtrack that's he loves that shit
0: well he loves classic rock too and he like in 2016 at the end of his rallies he would always play you can't always get what you want by the rolling stones which seemed like another self-aware thing almost like he's making fun of his own supporters with that uh but again maybe i'll give him too much credit i'm just amazed by how the smith's image reputation history has been totally rewritten In recent years, you know, you got the Donald Trump thing. Obviously, Morrissey with his shenanigans. If you were, like, a sexually confused teenager in 1985, like, you were listening to The Smiths. Like, this was a band for outsiders, you know? And now they have this, like, mega connotation. It's just very strange to me. Like, is Trump at some point going to start playing uh i don't know like joy division songs or like the cure or you know like other outsider music from the 80s i i, I don't understand it, it's really crazy to me i don't know i i just feel like if you had told a teenager in 1985 that the smiths are going to be considered like a conservative band in 40 years it would have blown their minds this is like worse than ronald reagan co-opting born in the usa that was a contemporary
1: song at the very least and you know, like, re- re- like, very easy to misread. So Yeah,
0: right, exactly. And, and this is just, I don't know. It, I guess it's just a matter of Smiths fans now being in their 60s. You know, like, they're old now. So, and those are the people more likely to vote for Trump. So <laughs> I guess this means that the Smiths are classic rock in the same way that the Stones are. Or you know, all the other artists that, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp, you know, like the, <laughs> the, the stuff that he likes to play. It's really mind blowing. Um, we got to do a quick sports cast here. Uh, it's probably going to be the last one for a while. Uh, I mean, we'll probably talk about the Super Bowl, but my Packers, of course, lost to the 49ers uh, last weekend. And it was one of those games where it went from, we're just happy to be here, to, we should have won this game. Like, it was the type of game where I had no expectations going in, and then it turned into another instance of me having my heart broken in a crushing loss to the 49ers in the playoffs. Uh, And I feel a mixture of happiness and resentment about this, (laughs) because it's like, why couldn't I just enjoy this improbable run that we've had? Why did we have to outplay the best team in the NFC and then blow it at the end? Because we let Brock Small Hands Purdy go six for seven on his last drive and beat us at the end of the game. And then you got our uh, idiot kicker, mm. our drunk idiot kicker. To I don't know if he's drunk, but I'm quoting <laughs> Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning on Mike Vanderjack, our drunk idiot kicker who can't make a goddamn kick at the end of the game, can't make a goddamn kick at any point. Um, I don't know. I'm disappointed, but I'm all in on Detroit. I hope Detroit wins this weekend. I hope they go all the way. Upper Midwest forever. NFC Central forever. Not the North, the NFC Central. Um, I'm pulling for you, Detroit. Please get it done for me. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think that I can't imagine anyone outside the San Francisco area cheering for the 49ers this weekend. And I think that's even debatable whether people in San Francisco can cheer for this team because they're they're sort of like the Warriors in that they're playing out in like Santa Clara or whatever. Uh, you know, they're not even like really part of the city. And I think the only ethical Rooting interest in this entire playoff is just whatever prevents us from getting San Francisco versus Kansas City. I mean, it feels inevitable. It feels just like so dispiriting because you're like, if you get KC San Francisco, I mean, this is like they're both like teams with otherworldly talents, but just no joy, no swag. They're like the Warriors, you know? And then you'll have to deal with, you know, obviously the Taylor Swift stuff, but then like Brock Purdy doing this kind of like C-list Tom Brady impersonation. Like, yeah, I get it. He was picked last in the draft, but no one is really sure if he's actually good. But, you know, if we, if he gets like his shit humiliated totally by the Ravens defense in the Super Bowl, I think that will also be a decent outcome. But yeah, you got to root for Detroit. They got fun players, a fun team. You got Gretchen Whitmer and Bob Seeger maybe doing a little test run to primary Joe Biden. I love that (laughs) political combination. I I swear, like, Gretchen Whitmer is, like, my personal pick for, you know, like, a Democrat, like, uh, presidential candidate. And I guess it's fun to, like, compare her to San Francisco's, like, most obvious presidential candidate, Gavin Newsom, who's just, like, the slimiest, like, Clinton-era smug politician. There's absolutely no ethical justification to not root for Detroit and Baltimore.
0: Well, you know, you're talking about politicians from the various cities. I was thinking about uh, bands from Detroit and San Francisco Mm -hmm. because I was thinking like, well, Detroit, obviously one of the great music cities in America. You've got Motown. You've got all those great uh, proto-punk bands, Stooges, MC5. uh, You've got Bob Seger, of course. And then you, you get into uh, later on, you've got all the garage rock stuff. You have the White Stripes. And you've got the band that Jack White beat up, <laughs> uh, Von Bondi's. Uh, you got Eminem, D12. And then you get uh, more modern here. You have The Armed. You have uh, your favorite band of all time, Proto-Martyr. Uh, <laughs> all these bands from Detroit. Uh and then you think about San Francisco, and you, you got the Haight-Ashbury period, obviously. You got the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Silver Messenger Service, all those bands. Um, but then, yeah, I was digging in, and, like, their indie rock history in San Fran is, like, pretty deep. You've got, like, Deerhoof is from there, obviously the O.C.'s, Red House Painters, American Music Club, the, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Um Counting crows, my boys (laughs) from San Francisco. Uh, I got four non-blondes. They're Berkeley, aren't they? Uh, I'm gonna say the Bay Area. I think I think they're San Fran. They probably had guys in both areas, maybe even Oakland. Um, So I don't know. It's it's a close battle. Musically speaking, between these cities, I don't know if you have a preference, well, Detroit versus San Fran.
1: I, I do think that there's a pretty there's a deep history, obviously, with San Francisco. But like, I don't know if you mentioned any bands who have been like, you know, from the past ten years. I, you know, I just being in San Francisco uh, about a year ago, I, I can't imagine anyone living there, let alone like an indie rock band. So I'm trying to think of like the recent. Uh, products of that area because Deaf heaven comes to mind but they moved to LA uh, awake but still in bed and in the uh, recommendation corner favorite they're from San Jose and uh yeah and Detroit uh and Michigan in general has a pr- still has a pretty thriving like emo and punk scene uh, greet deaths actually from Flint but I think that kind of counts um yeah I, I got and also like I grew up in a motown household like my dad had like one uh, grateful Dead Allen, but like a shitload of Motown. So yeah, I'm going yeah. with Detroit. Like it, no matter which way you slice it politically, musically, just vibes wise. Um, you know, even uh, we're thinking about Tim Robinson, I think you should leave, or Detroiters. Oh yeah. There there's literally no reason to vote to to vote to uh vote with your eyes for the San Francisco 49ers.
0: Yeah. I should mention San Fran also has Metallica and Huey Lewis in the news. So that, those are two other big... <laughs> it's land of uh, contrasts. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, the Tubes, they're also from San Fran. Uh, Third Eye Blind, also from San Fran. So they've got a good history there, as do the 49ers. But yeah, I'm leaning Detroit as well. Uh, really hoping that they can come through. I'm going to call uh, Lions-Ravens Super Bowl. That's my prediction. That's my sports cast prediction. I think the Ravens are the best team in the NFL. I think they're going to win it all. They're gonna beat Kansas City. And I think the Lions, they've got momentum on their side. My Packers exposed them. (laughs) You know, they they wounded them, and the Lions are gonna come off the top rope. NFC Central tag team, and they're gonna take out the Niners. First Super Bowl for for the Lions. I'm calling it. I'm
1: I'm like much more pessimistic. I just feel like it's gonna be one of those games where the Ravens let the Chiefs hang around and then Pat Mahomes gets some questionable calls on a on a two minute drill and they win by like two points. I
0: I'm not as anti uh KC as you are. I I actually like the Chiefs. Um or at least I don't mind them. But yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a good game. That's going to be the Super Bowl, I think. Chiefs Ravens. I think whoever wins that wins it all. All right, well, um Let's do a quick fantasy draft update. Uh, you jumped out to an early lead last week with the Cali Uchis. Is it Kelly Uchis? Cali Uchis, I believe it. I believe it's Cali Uchis. This
1: is this is why I need Cali-uchus. to listen to the radio because if we're like we we find ourselves so many times like in a situation where we have to pronounce someone's name and like we've just never heard it in real life.
0: Yeah, I mean I, they don't even say artist names on the radio oh. anymore though. I feel like I feel like they play like a ton of songs and then you hear ads and then you hear a bunch of songs like you got to have the shazam ready to go if you want to know what's actually being played on the radio um but that doesn't help with our pronunciation problem but anyway callie uchis mm. you, <laughs> is, you you had the early lead last week and then i have two albums out today i have the latest from uh, katie kirby her album blue raspberry uh this again this is a great singer songwriter from texas this is a really good album she's currently at 81 uh which i'll take i was expecting it to be you know like low 80s if, if that could get bumped up a couple i'd be happy and then we got my boys <laughs> in the smile uh they have a new record out today called wall of eyes that's at 86 right now uh very happy with that uh Again, I was hoping for like mid '80s. We're on the high end of mid '80s there, and I hope it can maintain that. Hopefully, it doesn't go down. You know, there weren't a ton of reviews out yet, but I, I feel good about it. Um, and I'm curious about your feelings about this this record uh, by The Smile. Uh, I, I wrote about this album uh, about a week and a half ago because I wrote a big column where I ranked Radiohead albums, and I also included side projects and solo albums so there were 30 albums total and i had wall of eyes at 13 so like on the higher end of like middle of the pack for radiohead uh and i think that's where it belongs i think it is like definitely one of the best side projects that radiohead's ever done i actually like it more than a couple radiohead records um I don't think it's quite as good as the first Smile record, uh, "A Light for Attracting Attention," which came out uh, a few years ago. I had that at number eleven on my list, um, but they're both really good. And it's it's interesting with this new Smile record because you know when the first Smile record came out, the thing that everybody said is how much it sounded like Radiohead. It sounded more like "Hail to the Thief" era Radiohead than like actual Radiohead music from the last twenty years. And if anything, I think that this new album is even more in that direction. Like, this sounds even more like B-sides that would have come out in the late 90s, early 2000s from Radiohead. Uh, like, on the first Smile record, I feel like the influence of Tom Skinner, who's the drummer uh, in the band, of course. You have Tom York and Johnny Greenwood are the other two members. I felt like his influence on the band was more discernible like there was more of like a groove aspect i think to the first record this record his presence tom skinner it's still you know very you know it's very apparent but i don't know it sounded even more like radiohead this time and my sense that like radiohead isn't going to make another record like i think they might tour again but I don't know if they're going to make another album. It it, it feels even stronger now with this <laughs> Smell record, because I just feel like Tom York and Johnny Greenwood, for whatever reason, can make this kind of music more comfortably and efficiently than they can in Radiohead. Like, both of these guys have complained about how Radiohead works very slowly, and that it's easier to make records outside of Radiohead. And you can see that, because this is like the second Smell record in three years, And there's been two Radiohead records in the last 13 years. But it's like, why is it so hard for Radiohead to make records? You would think that the people that would be the perfectionists (laughs) in that band would be Tom York and Johnny Greenwood. It's like, are we being led to believe that like Philip Selway is like the (laughs) dictator? Or like Colin Greenwood is like, no boys, we need to do this a hundred more times. Like, I, I don't understand... Why these guys are so prolific in the smile and it's harder in Radiohead. There's like some sort of interesting dynamic going on there. But uh, I don't know. To me, the best thing about this record is that it's a vehicle for enjoying Tom York's voice, which is still incredibly well-preserved, and Johnny Greenwood's musicality. And hearing those things working in concert together. Um, It doesn't feel like an event, In the way that Radiohead records do, but maybe that's not such a bad thing if we're going to get more music from these guys as a sort of a, uh, you know, as the reversal of that. Um, But I I I quite like this record. I I I think Pitchfork, who still is reviewing records by (laughs) the way, they gave it an eight point five. Yep. So they're still very high on this band. What's your feeling about the smile? Yeah, I just love the idea that like after.
1: You saying that, like, uh, you know, like after interviewing Ed and Phil and Colin, like they're the super nice guys. Now I have to think of them, like the directors telling Millhouse to do the Jiminy Jilliker scene, like we got to do it again, and again from different angles. Um, but uh, otherwise, I mean, with 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 the smile, I think back to uh, for a lot of reasons. I've been thinking about like uh, Pitchfork Festival last summer, and I think if you were to tell like. Ryan Schreiber at the verge of the Condé Nassau in 2015, like, hey, man, like eight years from now, Tom York and Johnny Greenwood are going to play Pitchfork Festival, but it's probably going to be the last one, and uh, the site's going to more or less cease to exist in six months after that. I think you'd take it. You know, it's like, it's a very, like, a full circle sort of moment in the same way that, you know, Radiohead ending a moonshade pool with True Love Waits made it a lot easier to accept it's probably the end of them. And when I watched the smile play live, I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to do that yet. Um, it was like the, there was like a bucket list novelty to us. Like, fuck, man. Like, we are seeing t- John, we are seeing like the two most faithful people of Radiohead like, at this festival started by a guy who started this website in his basement. And after like 35 minutes, I'm like, I would stray this entire weekend if we just got the, the like Ed and Colin and Phil to play like the most minor radio head song like give me like give me sulk or what like i love that song but you know what i mean <laughs> and um yeah i just when, when, whenever i listen to the smile i appreciate it uh you know johnny does some really cool shit on guitar with this one um and at the same time i can't help but feel like it's like a respectable like kind of vibe Music for Radiohead. Uh, I I appreciate it and I can't love it. I can't imagine. I, I would love to see somebody like tell them how this. Tell me how this uh, this band means as much to them personally as Radiohead does. um I think you nailed it in in your ranking of the uh, Radiohead extended universe. How you gave. uh I think you put the bends ahead of in rainbows. You know the millennial choice for best Radiohead album because you lo- I you like me appreciate when radiohead go over the top like there there's that element of like sh- I, I say this all the time on this podcast but like shittiness I think like the bends the song is evidence of it or um with like okay computer how there's still something a little juvenile about it which obviously like connects to uh you know being 17 in the Israeli desert listening to okay computer but um yeah I feel like they're gonna put out a new smile album every two years. I'll appreciate it. It'll always get best new music or whatever equivalent it is. And it'll always show up at like number 26 on year end list. I feel like this is an album at like the one before it that will underperform its reviews. Uh so I think it's fine. We'll like go back and listen. Like I wish there was more shit like Bending Hectic. You know I'm sure there will people who will say Well, the one rock song, the one rock blowout, like makes the rest of the album stand out by contrast. But nah, I want to hear Johnny do the kind of stuff he was doing in the Just
0: solo or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I do think that this is as close as they are going to get to that '90s melodramatic, more you know widescreen guitar rock that you hear on the Benz and OK Computer, uh, which. That's for both of us. Like that's our favorite era of the band. I I do think that's related to how old we were when those records came out. Okay, Computer came out when I was nineteen, and that's like the album you want to hear when you're nineteen because it <laughs> is like the greatest album of all time yeah, totally. to you. And and I still feel that way. I still when I listen to Okay, Computer, I'm still like, this is maybe the best album to come out since I first heard it. You know, I, it's hard for me to think of an album better than OK computer that's come out since 1997. I, I still feel like that is the top record. And there's just a mythology with that record that is related to, I think it's inherent quality, but also when I heard it and I totally get that for a lot of people, that record is in rainbows And even that record is the King of Limbs for people. Really? I could see. Oh, yeah. You hear. I I hear that. Look, I wrote my book about Kid A. Radiohead came out three years ago. Or I guess almost four years ago now. And the thing I always hear about that book is I said the King of Limbs is the worst Radiohead record. Which to me is just like a self-evident thing. Unless you think Pablo Honey is worse. (laughs) But Yeah, It's definitely in the lower quadrant for me. And I hear from people all the time who are like, no, it's not. It's one of their best. And those people tend to be people that were, you know, in their late teens, early 20s when that record came out. You know, there's just something about, I mean, part of the greatness of Radiohead is that they have these different eras. And, like, you have your own Radiohead and it's related to how old you were when certain albums came out. I wouldn't be shocked if there were people out there who are 19, 20 years old. Who love the Smile as much as Radiohead, and maybe it's because they got to see the Smile at Pitchfork Festival or some other thing. Like this is their Radiohead. You know, they weren't there in 1997, and they may love that record, but it's like no, the Smile. This is like our music. I think the Radiohead is definitely one of those bands. They have different eras that mean things to different people.
1: Yeah, I, I also think though that to be 17 or 20 years old, like, puts you in the exact right position to get what kid a and okay computer were getting at they speak to very like juvenile very uh you know just learning shit about how the world works concerns you know because it's like oh we're going to be taken over by computers or apocalypse or whatever and the smile uh i guess it's like lyrical content feels a lot more subtle i don't think it uh it it, it speaks to that uh sort of mind to that like uh, you're in high school and just writing your college application essay. I don't know if The Smile does that. or But I could totally be wrong. I would love to hear from people who are like, you know, that, who are like centering their entire identity around The Smile the way people do with Radiohead. If they're out
0: there, I'd love to hear from them. I mean, I think the worst thing you can say about Wall of Eyes is that, again, it doesn't feel like an event in the yeah. way that Radiohead Records did, even like the later period, you know. And again, King of Limbs. I still think that's, like, a good record, especially, like, the live versions of those songs, I think, are, are, are really great. Uh, like, the worst Radiohead album is better than, like, most people's best album. I mean, they're just one of the all-time greatest bands. Um, so, well, it doesn't feel like an event like those records do, but, I mean, this is, like, a Great late period record by, like, a legacy artist, I think. I mean... Time York's 55. I think Johnny Greenwood is like forty nine fifty somewhere in there. Um, and they are not falling off dramatically. I mean, they, they're still making really good records. And I think that this record, again, can stand toe-to-toe with, like, most Radiohead albums. Like, again, I had it, like, in the middle of the pack in terms of, like, the Radiohead cinematic universe. You know, comparing it to, like, everything that the band members have done. I think it's quite strong. And I'm glad it exists. I'm glad these two guys are working together. Um, I would rather they make smile records than not work together at all or you know ha- putting out records. like there's there's this quote from Johnny Greenwood where uh, he, he, he did an interview with the NME where he said that, "I'd rather the records be 90 percent as good, but come out more often hmm. talking about Radiohead. and I think that's what the smile is. I think the smile is 90 percent as good as Radiohead. And we're getting more records from them. And I think that's a good trade-off. I'm, I'm glad there's another Smile record. And I, I hope that they put out records every two years. I think that would be great. I, I If if I happen to be a listener right now, I might
1: just do this myself where I make a fake, a burner account to make a fake letter asking if, like, the worst Radiohead album is better than the best Muse album. <laughs> so, like, King of Limbs or Pablo Honey, is it better than Origin of Symmetry? <laughs> That's a great. That's a great question. I, I imagine our mailbag will be brimming with uh, with ideas about that. I would say M- M- Muscle Museum. What a what a
0: great fake radio head song. I mean, I'm. I feel like probably not. I think Origin of Symmetry is probably better, but it's it's close. It's a conversation. <laughs> it's not a slam dunk uh, there. So yeah, write in listeners. We want to hear your opinions on that. Maybe we'll re- we'll revisit that next week. All right, well, now we've arrived at my uh, most anticipated part of the episode. (laughs) The thing I've been looking forward to the most and the thing I did the most prep work for before, uh, you know, leading up uh, to the recording today. Um, I'm going to give you a little quiz here, Ian, on your Pitchfork album (laughs) reviews. And uh, before we get into it, I just want to say what inspired this. I I was thinking this week about my own history at Pitchfork and how... I was like, how many reviews have I written? I was asking myself. And I think I might have even talked about this last week when we did our uh, talk about Pitchfork. In my mind, I had it as, okay, I think I've written somewhere between a dozen reviews and two dozen. Like, not that many, you know, like a respectable amount. And I was like, well, let's find out exactly how many I did write. So, I went online, Googled myself, went on my Pitchfork author page... And I was shocked, Ian, shocked <laughs> to discover that I wrote 57 reviews good for Pitchfork. Run. Good run! And there was a period, and I'd forgotten about this, but there was a period in the early 2010s where you know I'd left the AB Club. I was the music editor there. I left that job, and I was freelancing for Grantland, and they were about to bring me on as a staff writer. But I was doing a lot of writing for Pitchfork at that time, and looking at the dates of my reviews, I was like reviewing records like every week or every other week for about a half a year or so so i had a good solid run where i was like pretty busy there but it was amazing to me because i was going through my reviews and there were so many reviews that i had no memory (laughs) of writing like i was clicking on the link to make sure that it was really my name like i was like wait these reviews they were mistakenly put on my page i didn't write this stuff but i clicked and i was like sure enough i did I did uh, review this record. I did review this Melvin's Covers record uh, <laughs> from two thousand twelve. Um, I had no memory of writing most of these reviews. I had no memory of like listening to these albums. Like, if you had asked if you asked me like what does this album sound like, I'd have no idea. And it was just amazing to me. And then I started thinking about you, and I was like, I went on your author page. You've written nine hundred and ten reviews. That's forty five times more than I've written. <laughs> And I was just thinking, like, if I can't remember most of the reviews I've written, how many of these reviews does Ian remember writing? <laughs> I was really hoping to get to
1: a thousand, man. Like, I, I, re- I—that's I, I, not going to happen, I guess.
0: Now, I don't know. I mean, they're still going. You know, maybe you can Bill Belichick it and uh, just <laughs> hang in and get the record. Well, you already have the record, I guess. But yeah, it's un- unbreakable. <laughs> you, you can Bill Belichick it here. Hang on. With a new regime, this new regime. I I wrote like ten last year. This would like take a decade. Just you gotta pump it up. You gotta like just start (laughs) taking any any assignment. You know, just review anything. Uh, But anyway, I was like, okay, how many reviews does Ian actually remember writing? So I went into the archive, Ian, and I pulled ten reviews. Nice. And I'm gonna give you the artist and the album title, and I want you to tell me, did you review this record? (laughs) Some of these records, well, I'm going to say most of these records that I pulled, you did review. Some of them you didn't. Uh, So I want to see if you remember reviewing what you reviewed or if you mistakenly believe that you reviewed something that you didn't review. And if you did review it, I want to see if you remember the score. That's going to be bonus points. You're not expected to remember the score, but if you know the score too, then that is just above and beyond uh, the Call of Duty. So are you ready? Yeah, and I'm happy we're doing this because this allows me to address, like, a real
1: pet peeve in online pitchfork discussion where people get the scores wrong. Like, I, I feel like I have, like, a fucking frightening encyclopedic memory of these things. And I hate when people say, like, oh, you guys gave the suburbs at 9.4. It's like, it takes a half second to look it up. You don't have to lie to kick it. Like, it's okay to be a little ashamed of how much you care, but... Yeah, I, I see through that stuff. So I,
0: I feel like extremely confident in yeah, my you, ability to remember this shit. You were saying that. we I, I DM'd you and I was like, I have this idea. I want to quiz you on your Pitchfork reviews. And you said, uh, I'm you won't believe how good I am at this. And I was like, okay, I like your confidence. <laughs> um, I went into the deep cuts here. I'm not doing obvious. Like, I'm not going to ask you, did you review the Melancholy and Infinite Sadness reissue? Like, that's A-level stuff. I'm going deep here. And I, I feel like I'm going to stump you at least once. There's one in particular where I'm full, I I pulled a little funny business. I think I could trip you up. We'll see what happens, though. So let's get started. The first record we have is from 2010. It's called Outbursts, and the band is Turin Breaks. Did you review this record?
1: Absolutely reviewed that.
0: Yes, you did. That's correct. And do you remember the score? Ooh. Um,
1: that uh, I, I'm going to go with... Um... Let's
0: call... I'm going to say a 5.6. Oh, no. 3.8. Ah. 3.8. But that's okay. You you got... Again, that's just for bonus points. You correctly guess that you did review that record so that's one yeah. down you're one for breaks the
1: optimist lp that is a future if we that is a future indie hall of famer right there wow. i can remember i can remember the the i can remember positive scores to a very good degree okay that like the but uh yeah that if, if it's, if it's going to be like uh you know, C or D slot reviews that I did in 2010, I might not know the uh, score of those.
0: Okay, well, I, I pulled some clunkers. So I, I I thought that the raves would be easier to remember. So I, I was going for mid-range records to see if I could stump you. Uh, the second record we have is from 2014, The Other Eye, the band is 254. Absolutely reviewed that. Yes, you did. And do you remember the score?
1: You see, I think, so I, I think I reviewed both 254 uh <laughs> albums so this was the second one i think it was worse than the first one so i'm gonna go with a 5.2 Ooh, 5.3 is the correct ah. answer so close yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna err on the side of like even numbers uh yeah 5.3 i, I that's yeah that's that sounds good. about right yeah. that's
0: good that's a good one I, to get that close i'm very impressed okay the third record from 2013. It's called At Home. The band is called Keep Shelley in Athens. I totally reviewed that one. Yes, you did. And what was the score? I want to say that feels like 6.8-ish. Okay. A little, a little bit lower. 6.0 for that. Okay, gotcha. Who in the hell is Keep Shelley in Athens?
1: So they're named after like the city in Greece, I think, called, or Sweden, like Keep Shelley in Athens. Like, it, I remember writing about this. They had a good song. I, they had a song I put uh, called on a 2013 mix called Skyway. That's a good song. They're kind of like a. Uh... They're kind of like the proto Yumi Zuma. They're, they're a little chill wave adjacent <laughs> okay. like, or
0: shoegaze adjacent. Yeah, I totally oh, remember man. that one. That is, now we're, I mean, you, you, <laughs> now talk we're, okay. you, talk, you talk about remembering some guys. I mean, this is just, <laughs> you know, most people don't remember this hard. It's incredible. Okay, fourth record. You're three for three so far. Very good. Fourth record, also from 2013. The album is Soft Will. The band is Smith Westerns. I did not review that one. No, you didn't. I think I, interviewed
1: them, I think I interviewed them that year, but I did not review the album. And I think, didn't you review that
0: album? Yes, I did. I reviewed <laughs> that album. I did. 7.9. Uh, that's the third Smith Westerns record. Uh, it might be their last. It I probably is. I think yeah. it's their last. Cause, like, one of the members went on to form Whitney, and that's a much bigger band than Smith Westerns were. But I'm a Smith Westerns booster. Diet Blonde. Yeah, Diet Blonde. Fucking good record. Really good record. Okay, so you're four for four. Uh, fifth record. Also from 2013, Spectre at the Feast by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. I, I reviewed a Black Rebel
1: Motorcycle Club ambient album in 2008 or 9, but I don't think I did
0: this one. No, you didn't. You did not review this one. Was Pitchfork even reviewing
1: Black Rebel Motorcycle Club albums in 2013?
0: Yes, they were. They gave uh, it a 5.1. Who reviewed that? I did. I reviewed that <laughs> one. I thought I could trip you up. I thought, I feel like that's an album you would have reviewed, and maybe they asked you and you said no, and then they gave it to me. That's my <laughs> feeling about that. Unless they just thought the reason why we're using Haydn at this point is that he can review the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club albums that come out. Okay, uh, so you are uh, your 5 thousand. You're batting of five. a thousand. Yeah. You're batting a thousand. Very good. Uh, sixth album. From 2015, "Wasted on the Dream," the band is Jeff the Brotherhood. Totally reviewed that one. Yes, you did. Do you remember what you gave it? I want to say a 5.8. Ooh, close. 5.2. Mm. Um,
1: I think I like that album more than you did. Yeah, that seems like very much like us. That that seems like the type of album that you like in a in a, in a Grantland roundup album. You gave some mention to because I think didn't they work with like some guy from like Poco or something like that? There, I remember there was like some. There was some, it was either a producer that they worked with or something like that that gave, or like Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson's on that.
0: Oh, from Jethro Tull. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I had a couple other albums. They're from Nashville. I don't know if they're still active or not, but they they had some good records back then. Um, (laughs) Six for Six, you're killing it. (laughs) Seventh album, 2012. Nothing bad will ever happen. The band is Dignin' Porch. Ooh, tough one. I think I did. Yes, you did. Mm. And what I don't, the score? Th- okay, so
1: this is this one vaguely familiar. I cannot fucking tell you for the life of me what this band sounds like. <laughs> I just remember this name. That was a close one. That I, 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 I was I, that one I just kind of took a guess at. What the,
0: what the fuck is Dictive Porch? Yeah, it, it, it's getting harder. I put the harder <laughs> ones at the end. Um, <laughs> so you gave it up by 0. 0.9. Okay. So cool. another middling score. Uh, seven for Seven, you're killing it. Eighth album from 2013. It's called Melbourne. The artist is Jackson Scott. Totally reviewed that one. That album was terrible. No, you like, didn't. What? You didn't review this one.
1: This is oh, the one. Oh, fuck. I, I interviewed him. Oh, no, you, yeah.
0: you reviewed the second Jackson Scott record that came out oh, two my. years later. Oh, fuck. And you gave it a yes, bad I score. Yes, I did. Fuck, fuck. See, this is the one I thought would trip you up. This is the Ugh. tricky one. Cause I was like, he's gonna remember reviewing you did Jackson the first Scott. One. You, didn't you do the first one? I did the first one.
1: <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, the second one was terrible. Oh my yeah. god. Yes. Yeah. 7.7, oh. 7,
0: Jackson Scott, who I think was sort of like a retro 60s sounding singer songwriter, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Maybe. totally. He, Something he like was that. Like,
1: he was like Alex G. He was like supposed to be the Alex G before Alex G became Alex G because he was doing a lot of the kind of like post uh, Ariel Pink kind of like helium like scotch guard vocal ween stuff right oh i am so fucking embarrassed. Uh, i got this one wrong i jumped the gun because when you said melbourne like like oh that was the one that pitchfork liked
0: oh my god see that was the one i thought i might trip you up on because jackson scott the double jackson scott you did review the second one but not the first one so seven of eight very close ian uh the ninth record from 2012 it's called banks and it's by Paul Banks. Hmm. I don't think I did that one. No, you didn't. I did that one. Uh, that's a 5.8. Again, that's the solo record by Paul Banks. No idea what that sounds like. I, I don't remember it at all. <laughs> it does not sound
1: like Banks and Steel. It does not sound like everyone on my dick like they supposed to be. And I reviewed a lot of like the Latter-day Interpol records, but uh, yeah, that one I don't recall.
0: I thought I could maybe trip you up on that one, just because that seems again like a record you would have reviewed, but mm-hmm. you didn't do it. Uh, last one, from uh, 2013, the record is called Hunters, the band is called Hunters. That sounds
1: like the sort of shit I'd review.
0: <laughs> yes, you did. Do you remember the score?
1: I, I cannot remember it for the life of me now based on the name i'm gonna assume they were like one of those bands sounded like neon gold or like downtown records they seem like one of those kind of synthy uh one of those like synthy indie bands that was all the rage after like heim and
0: churches popped up is that is that what is that the case uh i'm looking it up right now um the brooklyn duo of uh Derek Watson and Izzy Almeida position themselves as a missing link between '90s grunge and the noisy oh. art pop of NYC in the early aughts. Oh, I remember
1: this one. This was like one of those. Yeah, that, this is like kind of a quasi-major label sort of post-labels rock band. Yeah, um, on mom I, and pop. I, 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 yeah, on the exactly not if it's, if it's if it's if it's synth neon gold. If it's guitars, mom and pop. I yeah. Oh my god, but. I, yeah, I think the fact that you dug into like 2012 to 2013 makes it more likely that I'd remember it. And I would be like, I, w- I was like, you know, scared that you were going to like bring up like 2008, 2009 shit. But no. I think that this this exercise worked because I was like writing like two reviews a week in 2012 and 2013. I was like a staff writer at that point and I had like a quota I needed to hit. And man, I was just getting busy back then.
0: Yeah. I'm proud. I got you once, you know, I'm so embarrassed. The Jackson Scott thing. I hope you're not up tonight, tossing and turning upset about the Jackson Scott thing. You did excellent on this. You were on top of all of these, the Jackson Scott. thing. I think you got a little overconfident with Jackson Scott. Maybe you had to think about it for an extra second, but, uh, I'm glad I got you once, but very good job on the quiz. Ian, I congratulate you. Um, let's talk about Alex G. Uh, big indie news this week is that Alex G is no longer technically an indie rocker. He signed to RCA big record deal. Uh, And the reaction to this story online was interesting to me because I feel like we're at a point actually well past the point where the distinction between like a major label and an independent label seems, uh, you know, insignificant. Like I, I haven't, I don't recall the last time where people cared about an indie band signing with a major. It just feels like it's all one big stew. I mean, this is the way that we use the term indie rock. It's more of a vibe than anything mm-hmm. like actually related to independent music. I mean, clearly, like we talk about Boy Genius being an indie band, and they're on Interscope, you know, right. all the way down the line. Um, but it did seem with Alex G that there were people out there that, I don't know if it was, like, anger, but there there was, like, a mix of, like, confusion, maybe, about, like, why RCA would do this, and then also, I don't know, like, discussions (laughs) about the implications of it. It was very interesting to me, because I just don't remember the last time this happening, and it really drove home the fact to me that for a certain generation, Alex G is this touchstone artist that is associated with, Underground music, I guess. I mean, he did get started, you know, being a very sort of internet native singer songwriter, got popular from posting ba- uh, albums on Bandcamp. But certainly, like in the last five years or so, maybe longer, he's like felt like an establishment indie guy. I mean, he played on Frank Ocean's record. Was it, did he play on Blonde or was it the other one? I think it was Endless but Endless. he did
1: i when i the last FYF fest uh, i do recall that he was part of this like kind of guitar orchestra that surrounded uh Frank Ocean's stage
0: so that was uh you know like 8 years ago mm-hmm. uh and i don't know i he has a big audience he's a good looking kid i mean he has that going for him he's very marketable he's not a very good interview uh can i say that <laughs> i think I, I think he's known for that he's not a very yeah. articulate guy i mean no offense to him but You know, I don't think he really enjoys that process. He is like the anti-Riley Walker. You know, like, Riley (laughs) Riley Walker is like the Hall of Fame interview subject. Just gives quote after quote. That's amazing. Alex G is like the opposite of that. Um, But I don't know. Like, what were your thoughts watching this whole thing unfold? Again, I just found it very surprising, the reaction to this. Yeah, I'm more surprised by
1: the reaction uh, than the... Actual instance of him signing to a major label. Um, I mean, you know, it, we it kind of primed the pump with him opening for the Foo Fighters, who I believe are also an RCA band, and it was sort of like when, like, I, I remember the story Death Cab saying that like they were on tour with Pearl Jam and they brought the record deal backstage, uh, for them to sign it, which was you know like, hey, welcome to the fold, but. I, I'm thinking about that Stereo Gum article about Shoegaze that came out like not a month ago where you'd hear about these artists that are getting signed to Interscope off the strength of like one song. Um, and I think that's been something that's happened quite a bit, um, whether it's a band like Surf Curse that got TikTok famous of a song that was like eight years old or something like that. But um, I, I just, I thought it was very odd that people were trying to frame this like, Back in the post-Nevermind Gold Rush, how labels would sign, like, the Meat Puppets or, like, the Melvins as this sort of, like, credibility loss leader. So they could, like, you know, finance the candle boxes and the bushes of the world. Or even, like, Sonic Youth, for that matter. But, like, Alex G has 7 million Spotify listeners. I I I can't imagine any major label not wanting to sign him. I guess, you know, he put out four albums on Domino, which for all intents and purposes, is like a major label anyway. Um, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Like, I, I don't know what being on RCA might mean for Alex G as far as like the future goes, but it's not like, I don't know. I, I don't see it as like a credibility thing for RCA. It just reminds me of, I think it was seven something years ago when you would hear that like the war on drugs and LCD sound system And Vampire Weekend were signing the major labels where it's like, well, they're not on a major label already. Or it's just like, yeah, these are like established uh, amphitheater filling bands. Um, And, you know, nothing wrong with getting a buck off it. Alex, like, get the, get, uh, Alex G, get, get, get your money get uh michael
0: beinhorn to produce your next record or something like that (laughs) oh man beinhorn get the (laughs) beinhorn treatment i love it yeah Yeah. i mean you know yeah and lxg i mean he writes what like pretty melodic songs i mean he's not like making challenging music it it is pretty much in the center of like whatever indie pop rock is at this moment i i do wonder like what is his ceiling you think commercially like is he Mm. Does he have the potential to be like boy genius, big, like where he's headlining MSG? No, I don't think so either. But I do think he will be someone who is productive and has an audience and will always do well. You know, I don't think he's going to be a superstar necessarily, uh, but he's going to be like a really solid. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're looking at like a Wilco type right for no yeah I, I think that's a good analogy for sure yeah and look who doesn't want wilco on their label they're really they're a great band they have they're respected <laughs> i'll tell they, you who didn't want wilco on uh, their label <laughs> that's true um so yeah Yeah. anyway congratulations to alex
1: g go get them not the end. not the end of indie rock as we know it um and i don't <laughs> right. see this being like i don't know uh, uh bands that like or just like this like it, this is not going to lead to like a swath of like Alex G sound alikes getting signed by major labels if that like that would have happened already you know what right. i
0: mean right yeah i think there is this thing now you mentioned like the war on drugs and like the nationals on a major and lcd sound system you know there was this thing in the 90s where uh National aren't
1: a major label
0: yeah they are cool. i got i should look that up i think they signed with I'll google this while i'm talking i'm pretty sure <laughs> they are um, I still thought they were on 4AD. Oh no, they're, no, they're, no, they're on 4AD, I guess. Still, I huh. thought they, I thought they. Uh, anyway, okay, scratch that. The <laughs> War on Drugs, though, they're on Atlantic. Uh, LCD Sound System. I'm not sure what label they're on. I think Columbia. Columbia. Uh, Vampire Weekend. You know, I. It's almost like these labels collect the indie bands that stick around long enough, and it's like we're going to put them on our label. We know they're going to be solid, but we're not expecting you know, Nirvana by signing this, by this I like this these
1: band. stories because this is like how I find out which major, major labels are still around, you know? <laughs> right, <laughs> Like which right. ones haven't been folded into like Universal or whatever. because, yeah, I think like RCA like was most, like was quite recently revamped or no, Electra was the one. I remember when I was reviewing out the White Reaper album, how Electra was kind of like raised from the dead and uh they signed because they're like, yeah, we want the same logo that we saw on metallica records back in the day all
0: right well let's get to our mailbag segment here and we haven't done a mailbag segment in a while uh but the the emails keep coming in which we appreciate we love hearing from you all hit us up at indycastmailbag at com. um and also you know i'm gonna put this out there again i haven't begged for reviews in a while but if you can give us a review <laughs> that always helps the podcast helps spread the word uh we uh We've had a really good beginning of the year so far. Our audience I, is blowing up. really? Pe- oh yeah, the last episode was big. Huh. Pe- people wanted to hear the pitchfork takes <laughs> from you and I, and they got them. And <laughs> sportscast too is blowing up. It's becoming one of the biggest sports cast segments inside of an indie cast podcast in America. You know, people that listen to indie, uh, indie rock podcasts to get sports news, I think we're number one. In that iTunes category, so uh, it, it's fantastic. Um, should we
1: like? Should we talk about then like the Bucks changing their
0: coach like mid? Oh man, I, I, are
1: you are you a Timberwolves or Bucks guy?
0: I'm a Bucks guy, but I'm a very casual NBA fan. I'm like I follow the the uh, the league via Twitter and sports podcasts. Like I haven't watched probably more than five minutes of a game this year. I would
1: wholly. There is so much overlap between NBA Twitter and indie rock, like forty something Twitter. Like oh, yeah. I, I think that I think that's an area of growth. So especially, yeah, especially as we get into like you know May and June when there ain't shit going on sports wise. That's so, true. That's yeah. true. Watch, well, watch this. Well, May space. June is
0: like the heart of NBA playoffs. So maybe we got to kick up our NBA contact. We we'll bring Woj on. We'll do some Woj. And he can like, he can break some indie rock news. Maybe he could tell us about the next person signing to a major label, you know, band members getting fired yeah. from their bands. Like we'll get like shams, shams bombs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. We, we need a woge and a shams for indie rock transactions. <laughs> Just dropping, you know, woge bombs on, uh, there's a new Adrian linker album, you know, like that's the woge bomb that got <laughs> dropped today. Um, all right. You want to read our letter this week? yeah it, it,
1: i love how this like ties into did you review this or not um because i know i've reviewed a lot of these guys albums um so this comes to us from michael from south orange new jersey nice. uh hey, hey guys first time long time big fan of sportscast yes sorry about that green bay loss not sorry about that eagles loss Ooh. Yeah. stay Gosh. in new jersey do not fucking set foot in the link michael i mean presumably uh, he's a giants fan
0: yeah i'm guessing he's a giants fan if he or a jets uh, fan i don't know i know but like you know if he's got animus against the eagles that's a division rival if you're a giants that's very fan. true so yeah, good anyway.
1: point all right so uh any uh couldn't help but notice the instacart das Races commercial i couldn't help but notice it because it's playing every five seconds um of all the songs i never expected to be in a commercial during the football game this has to be up there with using morrissey's every day is like sunday to promote direct tv back in the day can't imagine Morsi watching 0.5 seconds of an American football game. I don't even know if you could watch like a football game, like footy. Uh, what are your some? What are the most surprising songs you've heard used in a commercial? Also, if you have time, can you explain Hosier to me? I think the guy has only one song
0: and he's headlining festivals. I'll hang up and listen to your answer on the air. Oh wow, a two banger here. Yeah. So he's asking about okay. So there's a new Instacart commercial. Featuring the song combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. There's like a parody of that song uh, by Das Racist. And, uh, you know, that song, I don't know how big it was at the time. I mean, it was definitely big on the internet. Um, that it was like the dare. It was like the dare of 2009. <laughs> but way bigger, though. Yeah. Because yeah. the dare, I mean, come on, that was like a five-minute phenomenon. But uh, Das Racist, combination uh, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell... I hear that reference all the time online. Like, someone (laughs) will make some play on words using I'm at the something, I'm at the something, I'm at the something combination, something, something, like whatever. Like, I hear that joke a million times. It is like the dad joke of like millennial and maybe Gen Z. You know, Mm -hmm. like if you are an aging millennial, you have probably made a Das Racist reference like in the last five years. And This just seems to confirm that it's in an Instacart commercial now, that that generation is getting old. And (laughs) now this is like the, you know, we were talking about Trump playing Smith songs because all of his followers are like, you know, in their 60s. And that's, you know, they liked the Smiths 30 years ago. Now we've got these people, the Das Racist generation, if I can call them that. They're in their (laughs) 30s and 40s now, or maybe late 20s. And now you're the people that Instacart is going to be marketing to. So, congratulations. Now you are being targeted by advertisers who want to exploit your generational <laughs> nostalgia and your uh, worn out jokes uh, for their own benefit.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, def, I think I reviewed some cool AD solo albums back in the day, but. Um... Yeah, I, I with, with that that song's coming up a lot like the combination pizza and Taco Bell song. Um speaking of Taco Bell, I know that military gun is on Taco Bell commercials now which on some level feels like whoa, what's going on with that? But like when we think about what military gun was compared to like all the 90s alt rock bands, uh you know when that record came out, it's like a Taco Bell commercial seems like the most logical way for them to break into the mainstream. So Um, shout to Military Gun, shout to Das Racist. Um, I I don't mind hearing those songs on commercials. I don't have any sort of hangups about it. Um, but as far as like, I don't know, the most surprising, nothing surprises me anymore. I mean, like we had the era where you would hear like new slang in a McDonald's commercial or gravity rides everything by modest mouse like selling minivans i think the biggest surprise for me is that uh when volkswagen used the beach house song but it turned out to not be a beach house song right (laughs) where they like did ai before ai where they just like got um yeah just like some beach house sound alike band not memory house uh yeah we're gonna remember some uh fake Beach houses here uh yeah nothing can really surprise me anymore Uh, And as far as, like, Hosier goes, I think we can just, like, direct anyone who's questioning Hosier's popularity to go to Steve's uh, Noah Kahan column. Uh, That pretty much explains it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just to circle back a little bit to, like, the most surprising song. I don't... Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not really ever surprised anymore. It's not, like, 20 years ago when you hear, like, Nick Drake, Pink Moon in a Volkswagen commercial and you're like, holy crap, like, Nick Drake selling out from beyond the grave. Uh, But... The funniest song for me is Beck covering Old Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Grammy-nominated Old Man. <laughs> yeah, that was subsequently nominated for a Grammy, of course, because it's Beck. But, yeah, he covers Neil Young's Old Man for an NFL promo for a Tom Brady game. Uh, I don't know. I just find that hilarious. <laughs> like, I think about that and I laugh. Uh, Hosier, yeah, you know, Hosier. I actually think he has more than one song. I mean, you're thinking of the song "Take Me to Church." Yeah, um, that's his big hit, but he's got other songs, I think. And you mentioned my Noah. I think it's Noah Kahn. I believe is sure. how it's pronounced. I believe you, because <laughs> I, Callie,
1: you just Noah Kahn. We are struggling.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's Kahn, not Kahan. Okay. I think I'm okay. pretty sure it's Kahn. But yeah, I wrote about Noah Kahn this week. And if you're not familiar with him, he is this uh, folk singer from Vermont uh, who. Has had this like slow burn success in the last few years. He put out a record in 20, uh, 2022 called Stick Season, and it's just kind of gradually produced like a lot of big streaming hits. Like we were talking about Alex G having 7 million monthly listeners, Noah Khan has 33 million. I mean, he is a huge star and he's growing ever bigger. Uh, he's going to be, like, headlining Fenway Park this summer, like, two wow. shows, doing a couple shows at Madison Square Garden that are already sold out. And, um, you know, he sounds like the early 2010s folk pop that was huge. You know, Mumford and Sons, Lumineers, The Head and the Heart. There's lots of boot stomping and hand clapping and lots of, like, ohs, like, oh, like that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and that's the kind of music. And Hozier kind of falls under that too. Like he actually did a duet with Noah Khan recently on one of the songs from Stick Season. Um, and it's the kind of music that I feel like it goes in and out of fashion in terms of people talking about it in the media. But I feel like it never stops being popular. Never. I, 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 yeah, there's just a steady drumbeat of this stuff that's always big, and then occasionally you get a guy like Noah Khan who just really blows up and gets beyond the sort of, like, level of popular but not famous artists. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like there's a lot of popular but not famous artists in that scene who do huge streaming numbers, but, like, they're not celebrities, really. You know, like Warren Zaders of the world, like, people (laughs) like that. Um, Like, all these guys that, like, my brother-in-law listens to when he's in his backyard (laughs) hanging out. Like, I remember he was on Zach Bryan well before I was or any other music critic just because Zach Bryan really blew up online in a very organic way and the media was slow to cover him. I think Noah Kahn is sort of like a northern Zach Bryan. Mm. Um, they have a lot of similarities musically, I think. But yeah, Hozier, I think, falls in under that same camp where, yeah, you feel like he's, he's not in the zeitgeist, maybe, but he has great streaming numbers and he has a loyal audience. So those people are always going to do well at festivals. Yeah, and they'll always end up on like one of the New York Times uh writers
1: uh year end list, you know, in the same way Zach Bryan does. But for context, if like thirty three million Spotify listeners doesn't sound like just so that hits home, uh Boy Genius has like five million.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Stevie yeah. Yeah, bridges has like ten.
0: <laughs> right. Like he you know, like like Olivia Rodrigo, I was cause I was looking this up for yeah. this column I wrote, like she's got sixty million. So, you know, She's definitely on the upper end. I think Beyonce is fifty million, but like so like Noah twenty five. Yeah, so like Noah Khan, he's not at that level yet, but he's like getting there, and he will probably, you know, be in that like stadium headlining strata here uh, very soon. I mean, he can do that. I don't think he can play stadiums all over the country. He can do it in New England because that's (laughs) his home base, and he sings about New England all the time in his songs. but I don't know. I think he's going to be doing stadiums probably everywhere in the not-so-distant future. Don't count Noah Khan out. Nope. If you haven't heard of this guy, you will either love him or be super irritated with him, I guarantee, by the time this year is over. Yeah, for me, uh, if you're asking
1: whether or not I like this stuff, this sounds like the sort of music that I would like fake-like. Uh, if a girl I liked in college was into him or I'd like write the most scathing college paper review of his music.
0: (laughs) We've now reached the part of our episode that we call recommendation corner where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So as long as we've had like
1: talky British bands that like get popular in recent years i've made a call it's like man i just want like a maximo park you know like someone who makes dumb bangers and i think i say that like very lovingly about this new uh album from a band called courting uh the album's called new last name they got a dj sabrina the teenage dj guest spot there and i would say that they're the maximo park to the 1975's franz ferdinand uh i don't know if that if that like analogy works but it's dumber. It's more fun. It's catchier, um, and yeah, it's it's just like the sort of thing I've been dying to hear in this uh, wave of talky uh, British post punk whatever band. So yeah, if any of that stuff made any bit of sense to you, DJ Sabrina, the teenage DJ, Maximo Park, yeah, this is what's this is what's up for you.
0: So uh, I'm going to do a quick callback to my uh, draft picks this week. Katie Kirby, Blue Raspberry, and of course The Smile, Wall of Eyes. I like both of those records quite a bit. Uh, Blue Raspberry, Katie Kirby. That's a record um, that... It's just a real kind of great slow burn type record. You know, Again, she's a singer-songwriter from Texas. And uh, just really beautiful melodies. Uh, I like her voice a lot. Just a really nice record. I expect that to be an album that people come to as the year unfolds and you know you talked about albums underperforming on year-end lists contrary to the review i actually think that's an album that will grow in esteem as people discover it at, you know as we uh, move forward in 2024 um, i also have to do a shout out to your rec corner choice i think from last week the glass beach record plastic death uh, yeah. i hadn't really listened to it that much when you were talking about it totally dove in this week that record is so much fun. I love it so much. The way I've been describing it to people is, it's like if Tool had made a sellout record with Brendan O'Brien in the '90s. <laughs> you know, like where doesn't that, doesn't that describe a perfect circle? Well, maybe, but like something that's pretty proggy, but also catchy and melodic, and grabs you even when it gets kind of spaced out and weird. Like that's what that record is. It also reminded me a bit of you remember that band Mew. Of course I remember Mew. Oh, I love that band. Mew is great. I got Mew vibes as well from this Glass Beach record. Uh, and That might be even a better comparison than the Tool Brendan O'Brien record, although I wish that existed. (laughs) Um, But yeah, again, I'm just going to echo what Ian said. If you haven't caught up with this record yet, definitely an early contender for album of the year. Very weird to have that conversation already, but it just feels like that kind of record where the people who like this record are gonna love it. Like it's going to maybe not appeal to everyone, but the people who are on the wavelength of this album, I think, are gonna be obsessed with it if they're not already. So Yeah, this
1: album is crushing it on like album of the year and rate your music. Oh
0: wow. yeah, that, that oh yeah, that crowd, this this album is like straight down the middle. I mean yeah. the people who are on those websites, yeah, this this album is perfect for them. So yeah, great record. Definitely catch up with it if you haven't already. That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. <laughs>